Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today's Monday, August 31st, 2020. Hey, last day of August. For all you starting school this week, good luck. I hope you have a chance to do at least some of it in person. I hope you all enjoyed yoga week last week. For those of you who held that plank and listened to all five, way to go. If you didn't get a chance to listen to some or all of them, I highly recommend checking them out. Today, we shift gears back to women's health specifically, and we talk about the topic of fibroids. I'm joined once again by Michael Silverstein to talk about this very common gynecologic condition. It's really informative, and Mike is always a pleasure to talk to. On Thursday, Liz Schlansky joins me to talk about ectopic pregnancy. Hey, thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. Our number of listeners continues to grow, and I'm humbled and grateful. If you have an opportunity to rate and review us on Apple, I would greatly appreciate that as well. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Okay, we're here with Dr. Michael Silverstein, and we're going to be talking today about fibroids. Mike, welcome to Healthful Woman. How you doing? Thank you so much. Doing great. Glad to be back in the office and practice is building once again. We're keeping the office clean and safe and seeing our regular visits. And we're going to start revving up the aesthetics and caring for our menopausal patients. We had a great start in December. We held everything in uh, March and focused on the OB patients. And now in May, a slow start, and June has started out with a very nice full schedule. Right. So we're recording this at the beginning of June, and we pretty much just reopened our office for routine gynecology patients. Uh, obviously, the pregnant patients were still coming, and people with gynecologic problems were still coming. We weren't stopping healthcare, but for routine visits, many people didn't want to come because they were worried, and we weren't really scheduling them a lot, at least. And here we are back, and we're going to be talking about uh, a very common problem, so to speak, but maybe not even a problem, right? Absolutely. Very common is is the best way to describe it. Uh, in some studies, a quarter, a third, anywhere from 25 to 35% of women have some uh, representation of fibroids. Fibroids are just small muscle masses, uh, little swirls of muscle. Cancer and malignancy is exceedingly rare, less than one in a thousand and symptoms are also exceedingly rare. The studies that found them in a quarter to a third of patients were largely autopsy studies, where they found that women who were examined after they died, that a quarter or a third had some representation of fibroids. Right, and so fibroids, you said they're sort of like balls of muscle in the uterus. Technically, like if you look in a textbook, they'll be called tumors because it's a growth. Tumor just means growth. But as you said, they're benign. They're not cancer. They're just sort of like based on the size of like a marble or a golf ball or sometimes, you know, size of a baseball or a softball. And they're very, very common uh, in women. Now, do most women who have them know that they have them? Well, there's tremendous overlap in symptoms of all women, many women and women with fibroids. If you think about the uterus as being a muscular organ about the size of an adult fist, fibroids could be the size of marbles. They could be a little bit larger. Quite often, unless they are some of the rare patients that have enormous fibroids, 
It's an incidental finding when they come to the gynecologist's office. And sometimes even at the gynecologist's office, it goes undiscovered. And sometimes when they become pregnant and have an ultrasound, or they have imaging for some other part of their body, or their kidneys or their intestine, and somebody makes a note of note, there are fibroids in the uterus. I'd have to say at least half, if not three quarters of the time, fibroids are an incidental finding on either an ultrasound, an MR, a CAT scan, or an X-ray. And it comes as a, as a surprise to both the healthcare provider and the patient. Right. And traditionally, they were only recognized asymptomatic states, some without symptoms, if you could sort of feel them on exam when doing a, a pelvic exam, either just for an annual visit or for some reason. But really, those are only going to be the large ones you know, that a doctor could feel on an examination. The small ones you wouldn't be able to feel. And so nowadays, I would say most people get diagnosed based on an ultrasound. They come in for whatever reason, again, pregnant or not, and we'll say to them, hey, you know, you have two or three fibroids here the size. And they'll be like, well, I had no idea. What do they mean? And, you know, obviously we're very reassuring because as you said, they're very common. Absolutely. And uh, in terms of the location, uh, they're obviously, uh, they can enlarge the uterus. And once again, if you use the fist comparison, if there was a marble inside the fist, that's one type of fibroid. If there is a marble on the outside, sort of like a large ring on the finger, that would be a different type of fibroid. And if it was between the fingers or somewhere mixed up in the fist, that would be a third type. But they could be virtually anywhere and they could enlarge the uterus. They could be multiple small fibroids. There could be isolated large fibroids. But they really are, as you described very well, an incidental finding that you'll pick up on an ultrasound. And when you said that the different types of fibroids, just to clarify, meaning we give them different names where they're located, but if you actually looked at the fibroid you know, with your eyes or into the microscope, it would look the same regardless of the location. I mean, the fibroids are the same. And what I would always tell women is that, you know, like real estate, it's location, 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 where the fibroid is and its size are going to determine frequently whether women have symptoms or no symptoms. I couldn't agree more. And so what are the symptoms that someone would have if they were to have symptoms from a fibroid or fibroids? Well, since they enlarge the uterus when they're in the, uh, the muscular part of the fist, uh, often the periods can be uh, more uncomfortable because they enlarge the uterus. They also enlarge the lining of the uterus, and so the bleeding can be a little bit heavier. And if they get large enough to form a presence in the abdomen, similar to a pregnancy, women could have bloating or pelvic pressure they could lean on the bladder and cause urinary frequency. They could lean on the rectum and cause constipation or difficulty with bowel movements. What's interesting is when fibroids are big, they really have to get very big in order to cause symptoms like I, I look bigger or I can feel that there's something big in there or I'm having issues with my bladder or with my bowels or I'm having pain. Like They really have to be very large fibroids which again is not so common, but the little fibroids, pretty much all of them have no symptoms associated with them unless you're unlucky enough that that little fibroid is in or right next to the inner lining of the uterus, the endometrium, like you were saying, like the marble inside the fist. Because there, even though it's small, it's gonna, it can definitely affect the lining of the uterus, which is where your periods come from. 
That's true. So if it's not expanding the lining of the uterus, giving you heavier periods, if they're inside the uterus, they might not be as sensitive to the body's natural hormones. And so they might not cycle with the rest of the lining of the uterus. And so you could have irregular or unpredictable bleeding. Now, irregular and unpredictable bleeding needs a workup from the gynecologist. Fibroids aren't always the cause, but it's one of the causes. But that would be a, a rare finding to have a fibroid that's exclusively on the inside, but certainly uh, that's a, a more concerning location. Right. And so when we see them on ultrasound, you generally can tell where they're located. And if I see a, a bunch of small fibroids, you know, whether one, two, three, even more than that, but they're all sort of along the periphery of the uterus or even embedded in the wall of the uterus, I'll, you know, ask women, do you have any, do you know, you know, you have these, you have any pain or irregular periods or heavy periods or painful periods? And she says, no, I feel fine then you completely ignore them. But when you see the ones that look like they're pushing against the lining of the uterus, and she says, yeah, I have really heavy periods, it's probably because of that little fibroid just happens to be in the wrong spot, and it's doing that for her. That's correct. And not totally ignoring them, but certainly every couple of years or at some frequency, taking a look at them because they do tend to grow as a woman gets older. Sometimes there'll be a more rapid growth in a woman's 40s because the hormones are working a little bit harder to achieve an ovulation. And so sometimes there can be a more accelerated growth in a woman's 40s. Right. And also the other time they grow, in addition to just based on her age, is when women do get pregnant and have fibroids, they do tend to grow because fibroids love estrogen and they love blood. And when you're pregnant, you have a lot of both of those. And so they tend to grow during pregnancy. Again, it may still be incidental, but it may be the first time in her life that she has any symptoms on the fibroid, like pain, could be during pregnancy, or as you said, in her 40s. Now, after menopause, they tend to you know, either stay the same or get smaller. Absolutely. And one of my favorite conversations to have is with somebody I've been following for a number of years, who's now in her mid to late 40s talking about her fibroids. If she was relatively asymptomatic up to that point, I'd tell them that with the changes, there's uh, certainly going to be no more bleeding. And the vast, vast majority of the time, they're only going to get smaller and, and not require any attention whatsoever. Right. Because again, since the estrogen is decreasing after menopause, the fibroids are getting less sort of nourishment, so to speak. So they tend to shrink a little bit. The uterus itself also gets smaller. Everything, everything gets smaller. Now, who might need treatment for fibroids? You know, we're saying that, you know, they're benign, there's nothing to do, but there are definitely a lot of treatments for fibroids. So who would even require this or ask for this or, or need this? Well, we talked about the most common symptoms. Clearly, patients that are having uh, severely heavy bleeding so that they're dropping their blood count and becoming anemic. Women that have debilitating pain with their periods. Fibroids are also not the exclusive cause of pain with the bleeding, uh, pain, pain with the menses. Fibroids aren't the exclusive cause of heavy bleeding. But if other sources have been eliminated, severely painful periods when it's not from a different source could be an indication that the fibroids need to be treated. Severe pelvic pain, uh, severe constipation pelvic pressure from large, large fibroids often warrant an intervention. What you mentioned is important because since so many women have them, you know, 25, 30, 35%, and a lot of women have, you know, various symptoms, if someone has symptoms and you do an ultrasound and find fibroids, it's not guaranteed that the fibroids cause the symptoms. It's very possible 
that you know it's just a coincidence. And some of that it depends on trying to link up, do her specific symptoms match what we're seeing in terms of the number of, the size of, and the location of the fibroids. And if it's a really good match, then we can usually assume that A is causing B, but sometimes there's no match whatsoever. Someone has heavy periods and I see a small fibroid along the perimeter of the uterus, I'm not going to recommend treating for it because it's so certainly a coincidence and not the cause of her heavy periods. Whereas if it's in the location that you would expect it to do that, it's much more likely to be the cause and you would focus on treating it. Absolutely. It's what I usually refer to as aha syndrome. Somebody gets worked up for not getting pregnant or somebody gets worked up for pelvic pain and they see fibroids. And 40, 50 years ago, someone would say, you have heavy bleeding, you have fibroids, you need to have your fibroids removed. You have heavy bleeding, you're not planning more children, you need to have a hysterectomy. And so fibroids drove surgeries, probably unnecessarily, because many of these women would have done just fine with their fibroids. And sadly, many people who had surgery for heavy bleeding had probably more surgery than they needed. And many women that had surgery for pelvic pain had surgery to remove their fibroids, but persisted with their pelvic pain because the pain came from a different source. And so you really have to be confident that fibroids are the source of what you're treating. Right, particularly if the treatment we're talking about is surgery, because that's a, a major ordeal. If the treatment is, you know, trying, let's say, a birth control pill or something, which is not as, you know, high risk, can, you know, trial and error, but you don't want to trial and error with things like surgery. I couldn't agree more. So what would be the treatment options that are available to women? And then we'll go into sort of who needs which one. Well, very easy is a hormonal uh, stability. Uh, birth control pill or a combination, oral contraceptives, treats a litany of hormonal disorders. Clearly, if there is an excess lining of the uterus, hormonal contraception thins and stabilizes the lining of the uterus. If there is uh, fibroid that's getting nourished, as you put it, from the estrogen, birth control pills tend to stabilize that amount of estrogen and treats a litany of different issues. So it's not a test of cure if they get less bleeding with the birth control pills or less discomfort with the birth control pills, you haven't confirmed your diagnosis uh, of fibroids, but certainly you have stabilized the hormonal environment and it's a wonderful first step. Okay, so let's say someone tries that and it's not working or for whatever reason, we don't think it's gonna work, so we don't try that. What would be the next step after something like a birth control pill? Well, you certainly have to take into consideration their reproductive plans somebody that's eager to be pregnant, that does not have enormous fibroids, or as you mentioned, fibroids in the lining of the uterus where they could interfere with the pregnancy. Pregnancy offers a wonderful reprieve to much of the menstrual pain that women have. If they're not large or disruptive fibroids, they may grow in the pregnancy, but as you mentioned before, don't tend to threaten the health of a pregnancy. And so certainly getting on with pregnancy rather than waiting years and allowing the fibroids to get larger is a wonderful first step. For women that aren't planning a pregnancy at all in their future, there are stronger hormonal interventions and surgery remains the, uh, the ultimate uh, cure for um, overtly symptomatic fibroids. Right. Now, the, the thing that gets complicated with the surgery for fibroids is, as you said, the, the cure, the best operation 
to take away symptoms from fibroids, whatever the symptoms are, would be to remove the uterus, to do a hysterectomy, which can be done through an incision in the belly, which can sometimes be done vaginally based on the size of the uterus, which can sometimes be done laparoscopically based on the skill of the surgeon. But removing the uterus is going to cure the symptoms from fibroids. But that's really only an option for someone who's done having children, obviously. And so that is sort of the the option of last resort for someone who wants to have more children. For someone who's done having children or doesn't plan on having children, it, it is an aggressive option, but it tends to work. And hysterectomies are fortunately not such a risky operation for most people if they're healthy, because when you do the operation, you can generally sort of stop the blood flow to the uterus before you remove it. So they don't tend to bleed a lot during a hysterectomy. The issue is if someone wants to have more children and you're just trying to remove the fibroids and keep the uterus inside, which is called a myomectomy, which means to remove the fibroids. So why is that a more you know, complicated procedure to do? Well, excellent question. If you were to imagine, again, that we talked about before, that the fibroids are swirls of muscle that are mixed with the muscle of the uterus. They aren't uh, discrete masses that can be just removed and not leave blood vessels and gaping holes in the muscle of the uterus behind. And so quite often the uterus is quite disfigured by a myomectomy. If somebody has an isolated large fibroid that can be removed and the uterus be repaired, that's a level of myomectomy that is more manageable. If somebody has multiple medium-sized fibroids and you're making multiple incisions in the uterus to remove all the individual fibroids, there tends to be a significant amount of blood loss. And there tends to be a more significant disfiguring of the uterus. And that leaves behind the question of the functionality of a uterus that's had multiple incisions in it. It also leaves the possibility of scar tissue in the abdomen and peritoneal cavity that could lead to pelvic pain and scar tissue with subsequent surgeries if ever needed. Right. So it's it's sort of similar to the idea of the location driving the symptoms. The location also will drive the ease or the complexity of the surgery. If someone has even a very large fibroid, but if it's attached to the outside of the uterus on like a little stalk, almost like an apple hanging from the tree, very straightforward operation. You cut the stalk, remove, you know, the fibroid in the uterus is basically intact and you usually don't need to do anything to the uterus uh, afterwards. But if it's embedded in the muscle and you have to make a very large incision to dig sort of into the uterus to find the fibroid and then pull it out and then try to sew up that whole, you know, empty space, it may not be technically challenging to do the operation, but they tend to have a lot of blood loss. There's a hard recovery afterwards with these. And as you said, the uterus may end up having some disfigurement afterwards, which make it potentially difficult to get pregnant. Or during the pregnancy, there's a risk that that the incision on the uterus would open up. And these women are at increased risk of something called uterine rupture during pregnancy. When the scars in the uterus and they start stretching, they can open up. Fortunately, it's rare, but it's certainly significant. What's been a real blessing over the past 20 plus years is for those women with the small fibroids where their main issue is bleeding because they're located towards the inside of the uterus, they're able to have the fibroid removed by something called a hysteroscopy, which is much different from what we were describing before, right? So it's a, a very straightforward technique to use a camera 
to use a speculum and to go through the cervix into the uterus and use different tools to carve or shave out the fibroid. Those are the few that are in the cavity and, and uh, don't require an overnight stay, don't tend to leave the uterus scarred or disfigured, and tend to be a, a very dramatic improvement in the bleeding issue and dramatically increases fertility as well. Right. So if someone is you know, unlucky enough to have a fibroid that's causing all these symptoms because it's in the inside portion of the uterus. They are, however, lucky because the treatment, the surgical treatment at least, is much easier. It's much less risky. It's much less painful. It's much more likely to work. And as you said, usually the uterus is left in a really good state afterwards and they don't have the same risks in a pregnancy. And it's also a procedure that can be done several times. You can have a hysteroscopy and then if a fibroid grows back, you can do it again uh, because it's not, uh, it is an operation technically, but there's no incisions, there's no stitches, there's really very minimal on the recovery end afterwards. It's just the anesthesia portion. Uh, and then once they wake up, they pretty much feel fine. That's correct. And so clearly the, the best thing to do is not have to operate at all. And if you have to operate, to operate through the cervix for one that's in the lining of the uterus. And clearly the example that you gave of the large fibroid that's on the outside of the uterus probably doesn't need surgery in the first place, but it's a very straightforward surgery that's open and closed in less than an hour. What alternatives are there to surgery? Let's say a woman is sort of borderline with her symptoms and she'd like to do something, but she really prefers not to have an operation. There are other techniques out there uh, that we don't do as gynecologists, but other specialties do like something called uterine artery embolization or this, you know, the ultrasound ablation. What, what are those? So there's a litany of individuals, radiologists, gynecologists, plastics and reconstructive surgeons that work with different techniques to make fibroids smaller, to cause them to necrose or lose their blood supply and stop growing. And many of these have mixed reviews. Several have success. But again, the fibroids we're talking about tend to be the isolated fibroids that probably weren't overtly symptomatic in the first place. And the real problematic ones that are multiple and spread through the uterus are more resistant to some of these conservative measures. Yeah, and it's hard when you look at some of the, the data on this, the way it's typically reported is we had a fibroid that was this size, then we did the procedure, and now it's smaller. And so, okay, you know, that's great. It did something, but the question is, did that matter? Meaning whatever symptoms she had, is it better? Is it going to come back? Is it going to have any long-term issues? And so there, there is a role for these procedures, particularly in women who the size of the fibroid seems to be the main issue for them rather than the presence of it, because they don't go away from these procedures. They just get smaller. And also maybe someone who's towards the latter end of having to deal with this, like she's in her 40s, and maybe she just needs something that can temporize this until she gets to menopause potentially. But this isn't something that's usually done for a lot of younger women, at least in my experience. Is that yours as well? A hundred percent. And and the, the latest on the market is a slightly different hormonal approach. Uh, for at least 30 years, there have been medications that can shut down a woman's estrogen production, which sounds like a pretty harsh thing to do because the major side effect is very similar to menopause with hot flashes and vaginal dryness and mood instability. 
but it does tend to shut down estrogen. The history was it were injections that were given at one, two, or three-month intervals. But they do cause overt symptoms, and they're also short-term in that you would use them for three or six months and then allow them to recover from their hormonal barrage. Currently used by infertility doctors to control ovulation and so allow them to take more control over stimulating an ovulation. Uh, the latest ones in the last five years are oral that can also shut down uh, estrogen production uh, hormonally but they have the same litany of symptoms that the original injected medications do in terms of the hot flashes and vaginal dryness and are also only used in short bursts. Right. So I think for, you know, when talking about these medications, again, they're, it's great that they're available and there's definitely a role for them in some women, but there isn't one answer for everybody. And, you know, for fibroids, like you said, the vast majority of women don't need to do anything about them. If they're found and there's no symptoms, you know, if they're not bothering you, don't bother them. You can just leave them alone. If they're causing symptoms and they require treatment, a lot of it just depends on, number one, what symptoms? Number two, how severe are they? Number three, you know, what are the treatments that might work for those symptoms? And then obviously where they are in their reproductive lives will change management. The management for someone who's before having all of her children is going to be different from someone afterwards, both in terms of what medications you might use or in terms of what operations you might do. But again, I think the most important thing is that for most women, nothing has to be done. I couldn't agree more. And also fleshing out other etiologies to what their symptoms are, because blaming fibroids gets back to the aha syndrome and having a symptom complex, finding fibroids and, and just assuming the connection. So being fairly confident that fibroids are the source, being fairly confident where you are in your reproductive life, reviewing age and functionality and making a decision with your gynecologist. And finally, in what circumstances would you as a doctor be worried about a fibroid, meaning someone doesn't have symptoms or their symptoms are minor, but you say, I'm really worried. Like if it was, are there any circumstances where you would suspect it was cancer or potentially cancer of the uterus, or is it just so rare that it doesn't happen? I, I can't say that it doesn't happen, but most fibroids tend to be symmetric. They tend to be circular. They tend to be, ha they tend to have a minimal amount of blood flow. Certainly a fibroid that either ultrasonographically or on an imaging basis had an increased blood supply, had an irregular border, or was reaching out in an asymmetric pattern would warrant further investigation. Right. And those are all unusual. They, they look pretty typical on ultrasound. And so those concerns are rare. I would say sort of practically the one time we get concerned is someone is after menopause and one of their fibroids starts growing rapidly because that's not supposed to happen. I guess it, it could happen. It doesn't mean it's a problem, but that would be something that would be a little bit more concerning potentially and should be interesting. But again, that, that situation itself is very rare. And fortunately, those types of cancers of the uterus are also very rare and fibroids are very common. So it's almost never a circumstance where those things come up. There's no doubt in my mind that if you operated on everybody with a fibroid, You'd injure more people from your surgery than you would save from a malignant from a malignancy. Right, that's a good point. So it's it's not sort of better safe than sorry because there's risk to surgery as well, 
and you really only want to operate if someone's having symptoms uh, that can be fixed by surgery or there is a strong suspicion for something other than a fibroid. That's correct. Excellent. Mike, Dr. Silverstein, thank you so much for coming and talking about fibroids. I know this is something that you know, gynecologists uh, talk to patients about every single day because they're so common. And it, it's great to have this review with you. I appreciate it. Thanks for doing these podcasts, Nate. I think you're doing a fantastic job and I hope more and more people tune in. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.